Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clip. Welcome to Extended Clip. It is episode 237, and I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And today, our topic is Bonjour Tristesse. Now, you might you might hear that title and think, is this a French movie? No, 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 no. This is directed by Monsieur Hollywood himself, Otto Preminger. And I say it like that because he's one of the, the auteurs that the French really liked back in the 50s and 60s, and uh, that a lot of American critics really liked, and has somewhat fallen out of favor. I mean, when I say fallen out of favor, uh, people aren't walking around calling him a hack, you know? Yeah. But... When you're logging on to your your film website of choice, and people are yucking it up about classic Hollywood, they're they're dropping their top fives. They're doing uh, one's got to go, you know, with Ford, Hawks, Wells, and Hitchcock. It's like, you know, Preminger's not really in those conversations anymore. Uh, like I feel like just from reading older film books, I feel like he used to be in that conversation more during uh, Saris's era, for example. Yeah, yeah, no, especially working through the Romare book that I have, uh, they're they definitely talk about like during the Calle du Cinema parts. Like he's one of the one of the boys. They're yeah. really uh, heaping on love for, and I mean, obviously, I think with time, it's natural that some guys. I feel like it even feels a little silly to say like left by the wayside because things like uh, Anatomy of a Murder, I feel like still are. I, I, it's hard to judge like critical consensus, especially like within our own like little niche circle. But it, d- it does definitely feel like fallen by the wayside to uh, some extent. I would say the the B pictures, the more genre stuff, has definitely fallen by the wayside, and the deep auteurist readings. Whereas, yeah, his bigger social issue dramas from the late fifties into the sixties have been canonized, and you know maybe rightfully so, maybe not. Uh, but I, I feel like him as a studio guy who came from the world of theater and Europe uh, and came to Hollywood and, you know, failed at first, went back to theater, then came back to Hollywood and gave it another shot and was really grinding in the trenches uh, of, you know, the assembly line, uh, the factory line studio system of the late 30s, early 40s. And so for him to slowly develop this really unique artistic voice uh and and we see it in you know its full form here uh by 1958 with bonjour tristice uh i i just think he's like such a great case study for individualism within the factory line system malcolm are you a uh, are you a preminger head is your name Otto? and do you like to get blotto i remember seeing that from the simpsons as a young kid blotto i was i don't even know what that means but i like the uh, the wordplay so yeah i do like to get blotto i am with Otto. Um, i mean yeah uh auto preminger yeah like you guys were saying maybe not everyone's first choice when it comes to classic hollywood but he's someone i've always been fascinated by and yeah a lot of the french critics liked him and uh you know maybe he was held to higher esteem and i think it you know i think uh one other aspect i don't know i think he was a little bit more uh, you know, daring than, you know, maybe people would give him credit for and, and, and a lot of stuff that I haven't even seen yet. But uh, something like this movie, I don't know, it, it feels a little bit ahead of its time, a little bit um, 
you know, ahead of, uh, you know, the terms of thinking that were in the classic Hollywood era, uh, era. And, uh, I, I just remember watching this movie and I don't know, I was just kind of impressed, you know, by those things. And that's why I wanted to bring it to the podcast. And, you know, it's funny. I, I was, <laughs> I was reading, um, Bosley Crowther. Is that how you say it? Bosley. I, I always do like a spoonerism on accident. I yeah. always say, I always call him like Bowser Crosley or Bowser something like Crosley. that. <laughs> I can, I, I never get it right on the first try. So I'm, I'm yeah. hoping that you are right. Bosley Crowder. Um, I, I was, I was thinking of like the anti. Yeah, dude. Bosley Crowder is played on like every NBA team. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, whatever. I forgot what his actual name is, but yeah, Bosley Crowther or whatever his name. He was just like I, I just was looking up reviews out of curiosity, but I ended up only reading this one just because I thought it was funny, and he was just like, this is like a movie about like just a young vapid girl you know and this is an adult <laughs> movie and there's we're not we don't even know why you know her, her dad cheats or whatever so it's like he's like this is like a thin superficial movie and i think i think this movie is just ahead of its time just because it is it is about i guess superficial people mm-hmm. and whatnot and kind of uh i don't know it's kind of interesting to see that you know one of the top critics of the day you know, couldn't, couldn't handle that. Couldn't handle the, you know, I guess he wanted some relatability, you know, but I don't know. I, that's why I find this movie interesting. I think it's probing something that's very specific and kind of, I don't know, uh, you know, like whether the, you want to like, uh, what do you call it? Excuse a character's poor behavior seems so beside the point to me, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I and I want to keep talking about Preminger at large a little bit before we get into uh, Bonjour Tristis in particular, just because we've never really talked about him on the podcast. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think that he's such a psychologically probing director uh, that that's the one thing that really changes over time with his approach from just seeing, you know... Uh, a baker's dozen of his movies or less is a baker's dozen more than a dozen uh yes it's 13 okay never mind bakers are very generous yeah well i've seen more than that uh after okay. seeing a shysty baker's dozen uh <laughs> no don't dozen. say don't say what kind of baker about them. Uh, <laughs> uh, after seeing a you know a fair share of Preminger movies, it seems like, you know, that was there at the start. It's there in the 40s, you know, dramas. You see something like Daisy Kenyon, and it's like, oh my God, this is so far beyond its contemporaries in terms of character psychology and the way that interiority is formed through both performance and direction. Uh, and then by the time he gets to Bonjour Tristis, he's like, he's doing European uh, realism and modernism in a Hollywood, not Hollywood, a part Hollywood, part UK uh, setting because the production was uh, American and British, I guess. But yeah, he's ba- essentially, you could call it a Hollywood movie, you know, uh, because he's a Hollywood director making a big movie in the late 50s. He He's bringing a very European style to American audiences that were absolutely not ready for it. But it's also so clearly an extension of work like Daisy Kenyon 
or Angel Face, which utilizes a uh, a car wreck uh, in a melodramatic way toward the end in a very different way, but evokes a similar feeling. And, you know, I feel like it's so crazy that he was able to translate what he was doing through more for higher work with like the noirs and dramas uh, into this super, you know, ahead of its time, super artsy movie. Uh, I, I find that fascinating. Yeah, no, in general with me, I think that's always what I'm blown away, both in terms of like style and content. There is this like progressive like edge to it that's like not like progressive and like you've described like things like uh, Anatomy of a Murder and some of his later work is like social issue movies. But I feel like especially for the time as well, there's like a... Um, kind of provocative like he still is keeping that like sort of b-movie flavor like a little bit where both like the style of the films he's making is kind of uh large and uh i don't know he just takes a lot of like swings that are i feel like unprecedented for filmmakers at the time and then also just things like anatomy of a murder like uh jimmy stewart's dad very famously like wrote a letter to uh, his like local newspaper in Indiana, Pennsylvania, saying, "Do not see the obscene movie that my son is in." His son being like probably at least like forty year old man yeah. at, at this point, and but, one of the biggest movie stars. Yeah, in the I mean, he's a, much older than forty at that point, right? This yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, just talking about your grown adult son in this because it's the first like Hollywood movies to like say rape and panties. I think there's there's very much so, and I mean it's especially like another like social issue one man with a golden arm like that's still like really provocative too like that's addressing like a subject matter and i mean this like as well like the weird freudian like layers to it is something that like i feel like if you're of the time and digesting like just regular like a uh, flow of media this is i don't know preminger's work is really uh it's very disruptive yeah disruptive uh, so let's talk about Bunger Tristis here. Uh, you know, you start out with the Saul Bass opening titles that kind of define the, uh, I guess, mature period of Preminger's work. I guess most of his films from the mid to late 50s onward, uh, he, he worked with old Saul Bass on the visual design of the opening titles. And uh, so we start in black and white in the present day, as it were, where our, our lead character, uh, played by Gene Seberg, who is billed third uh, in this movie, I think that's another reason people didn't really like it, is because we're still in star-studded Hollywood. You know, David Nevin, second build, uh, and, you know, first build is the woman who plays Anne, uh, Deborah Kerr, I believe. Uh, and so the fact that this movie centers around this, like, teenage girl who's, you know, not famous for being in movies yet. She did two movies with Preminger, this and St. Joan, the Joan of Arc one. It, I, I feel like that probably turned people off as well because her acting style is not like that of the Hollywood system. There's a reason why Godard cast her in Breathless, uh, essentially as a continuation of this movie. Uh, that's what he said. He said, this movie could end and you get a dissolve to three years later and Breathless would start. That's how Godard describes the relationship between Bonjour Tristis and Breathless, which I didn't know that. Fantastic That's relationship. So yeah. That's very funny. 
So we see her in what feels already immediately like such a European movie where, you know, she's like dropping her painter boyfriend just because like she thinks he's boring, basically. And then she goes home and talks to her dad, David Nevin, about how he just dropped his recent girlfriend because she's boring. And it kind of introduces this really strange dynamic where this father and daughter are like buddies while helping each other date. And obviously she's 17 and kissing him on the mouth all the time. She's calling daddy by his first name. Yeah. That's fucked up. I like rolling up Raymond. Yeah. No, that that's your father. <laughs> show him some goddamn respect and you cannot leave the house dressed like that. I'm sorry. Get back you in the ca- house. You call him father or Mr. Tristice. <laughs> <laughs> No daughter of mine will leave the house looking like that. Um, I just love pretending to be an angry father. I don't know. I could do it for a while. But uh, Yeah, I, w- I would say you got the bones for it. <laughs> um, the bones for it. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I love this kind of weird family dynamic at the core of this movie. Because it feels like a lot of the great like Hollywood movies think of like uh, you know Nicholas Ray and his movies and like kind of like about how the burden of like traditional family living is slowly you know eroding people's souls or you know whatnot and you know causing them to turn to various things where you know this one is kind of uh, I don't know it focuses on a, a strange family dynamic one that's probably not so common you know I'm sure it exists but you know this is not your typical family and just to kind of I don't know to examine uh, the intricacies of a weird family relationship is kind of underrated because I feel like the way family is depicted it's often about you know this expectation like oh i gotta be a good son or like i'm a father i have to provide you know kind of stuff we've heard over and over again and just kind of having this weird almost incestual kind of uh agreed debauchery that this father-daughter combo you know uh engages in you know is very fascinating well i like you bringing up ray because i feel like that's a perfect analog for a lot of the, it feels hard at points to call the father-daughter relationship here like subtext, like Freudian, because it's so like in your face. But I don't know, great like Hollywood filmmakers like Ray were able to bring like homoeroticism to like the forefront. And this is very much so feels similar to that where it's this weird like psychosexual angle that I feel like definitely is derived. Like the source material is like a French novel when the novelist was like 18 when he wrote it. Like I'm sure it's a lot more like explicit and like into the uh, the psychology of the character there but i feel like there's that like i don't know you get the fun of the weird clash of the kind of like repressed american sensibility sort of i mean obviously american like uk co-production but still you're getting that kind of angle to that is very much so like avoiding like that but bringing it to the forefront that I love that like contradiction there. Mm -hmm. So she's asked out at this ball when we're here in the, in the first act in black and white in the present day. And she starts going off on this great monologue and voiceover about kind of the uselessness and cyclical nature of dating. And after the races, he'll take me to dinner and dancing again. And on Thursday to the tennis matches 
and on Sunday to the country. What a waste of time, dear Jacques. What a hopeless waste of time. Uh, you know, she said he's going to ask me uh, out to uh, tennis and then to the horse races and then to dinner and to dancing and then eventually to spend the night. What's the use, you know? And she still goes through with it because that's just what you do in life, I guess. Um, but she she talks about this idea of a wall of memories and that's what triggers the flashback through these great optical effects uh, into the meat of the story. The flashback taking place in beautiful Technicolor on the French Rev- Riviera uh and you know you open and you got uh the father and daughter in like matching outfits uh doing all this like really you know way too cute repartee between each other like uh you know the weird relationship with the revolving door of maids uh and like nevin you know pinches the butt of the maid and realizes it's her sister because of how the butt that he's pinching feels and it's it's very you know evocative right from the start it's like this is going to be a movie that is about an older man exploring his own like late in life sexual immaturity uh and trying to make you know good of it while his daughter is coming of age right in front of him and being way too physical with him uh and of course both of the women you know uh that he goes for are like just basically look like they could be his daughter in 15 years and his daughter in 35 years. Um, And I I feel like it's playing into something that a lot of fifties movies were, you know, it's funny because psychoanalysis and cinema were invented basically at the same time uh, and basically around the same place in time. And then it takes until the fifties for cinema to really like get into its psychoanalytic roots. I think Uh, with the fifties melodrama with Douglas Sirk, with Nicholas Ray, and especially with Hitchcock in the fifties into the sixties. And I think this one is just leaning into that so much in such an interesting way. Um, I mean, the, the part toward the end where Jean Seberg has a T chart and she's like, logging comparative data about her (laughs) traits versus Anne's traits uh, because she knows that her father will be replacing her with this older woman Uh, is just like one of the most insane things ever. But it's like these ideas hadn't been expressed in clear cut terms really ever in cinema. So it's like, they're always going to be weird and vague because people don't want to make movies that are downright about psychology until a little after this, it just breaks wide open because people couldn't take the subtext anymore. And what's interesting about all this, you know, all the the deep, you know, uh, Freud-style stuff and whatnot is that we never really... It's deeply seeped in the Gene Seberg's character's perspective. You know what I mean? Like, kind of like David Niven trying to clean up his act a little bit and, you know, date a woman his age, try to marry a woman his age... It's it's all, you know, we don't really get the psychological uh, pangs that he goes through trying to make that decision or even know if that's even if he's really ever conscious of it like that. You know what I mean? And I, I, I feel like this movie benefits from, you know, just it being strictly from the Gene Seberg's uh, character's perspective because... I don't know. I think it gives what happens later in the movie, it gives it kind of that sense of tragedy because, you know, we're looking through the world 
through kind of like, you know, these youthful, you know, ignorant eyes. She's still, you know, young enough to not realize the error of her ways until she mm-hmm. does. Yeah, no, I like that sort of remove there from uh, the Niven's like perspective. It definitely like, yeah, you do get this weird. I mean, not not entirely like outsider angle because obviously she becomes like a just a thorn in the middle of this relationship. But like, you know, like obviously it's not going to work out because Niven is like can't even remember inviting the character Anne. Yeah, yeah. He's like he he's like oh yeah I, I forgot like I was just, he was like drunk at a party mm-hmm. when he was like you should come on vacation with us, <laughs> um and it's just like that's such a like a flag right from the beginning that's like oh yeah I'm sure this is gonna fucking work out, <laughs> but it's really fun uh to see the relationship evolve through Seberg's character, especially because it's just like you see how like flipping a switch like she changes like where she's like super excited that like Anne is there at like first is just like a presence in the house. But then when it come becomes like, oh, well, she is like competition for my father who's not like just sort of dumb, like vapid, like me or, and the other, uh, woman, uh, present in that relationship. Like, I don't know, shifts the dynamic, makes her have that, like, like realization, like self-realization that she desperately wants to avoid. And, uh, I don't know. It's just fun and fascinating to get that. Yeah. I mean, and showing up at the vacation house about 20 minutes in changes, you know, the whole dynamic of the movie, despite, it only being her and Gene Seabrook's character in that scene, it feels like every character has changed because it's such a massive dramatic shift where, you know, you get the excitement, then you get the embarrassment uh, on behalf of Gene Seabrook's father of her having to tell her, well, yeah, Elsa's here, but like, it's fine. Like he's sleeping back in the backyard. Like there's no funny business going on, you know, and she goes rage mode because of it. And then, you know, that, that just like starts the relationship of weirdly threatening, uh, like the weirdly threatening relationship that Anne has toward the Gene Seberg character, uh, from there, like she's seen her in full rage mode. She knows her potential. If she gets angry and gets on the wrong side of her, she knows what gets her angry. Uh, and it's like the fear of her father getting taken away and just the fear of, you know, losing him to this woman who can clearly like out brute strength her, you know? And I think it's interesting as well because it's like the Anne character like comes in and I feel like a more uh, traditional sort of film would paint that as like, oh, trying to institute this like level of conventional family here. It would be like sort of a positive thing, especially where it's like, obviously I think we're getting like a very harsh angle into the Seberg Niven lifestyle that they're leading. That's clearly like weird and fucked up, but like Anne coming in to sort of like square the perfect, like traditional family isn't like, isn't quite that. Cause like Anne has her own weird hangups, like with not letting like Seberg, like see her young boyfriend. And it's just like, again, it's not like 
she's coming in to be like, oh, a lovely, inviting mother. Like yeah. it's it, there are a lot of uh, edges there. Well, I think it's also the the comment on the nuclear family there is that like if you don't have it at the start, especially if you're living this bourgeoisie lifestyle that leads to pondering and ennui, like if you don't have a strong uh, family, you're gonna just be fucked, and there's no real mending for it. You know, like it's it's not really mentioned even what happened to the mother. You can kind of assume. The mother killed herself. That's that's my reading into it, at least. Uh, uh, Gene Seberg's mother. That yeah, is. yeah. Uh, because you know, toward the end, and you know, to skip ahead toward the end, Anne ends up in a fatal car crash, and there's a speculation that it could be suicide, but there was no note written. Um, and Gene Seberg says the line, "My father never even mentions the word suicide, especially around me." Uh, or not even around me. And I feel like that kind of deepens it and calls back to the a possibility of this being a repeated thing because at the end of the movie, they say, all right, well, this time we're going to go to Italy for a change of pace, you know, but they're basically just back at it. And he's like, yeah, I'll let you know by the end of the week if I invite this other young broad. Uh, and so it feels like this is a repetitive thing and there's no fixing a completely damaged nuclear family, especially when they don't even have to worry about money. Like they can just live a vacation life. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of what you're saying of like, JT with like the Deborah Kerr character, she traditionally would be kind of like, you know, kind of like whip them into shape, like the, the power of, uh, you know, the nuclear family, you know, a traditional, you know, mom, dad, daughter relationship that, you know, the goodness of that would tie everything together. But as we see when she first arrives, you know, you know, she's when she's told that there's this other younger lady that's staying there it seems like she's going to storm off but then you know moments later you know when they're discussing her very publicly almost in front of where she you know in front of the room and where she's staying she she's like no i'm i'm here and i'm i'm fine with it and it just shows that the kind of the mutual agreement between this father and daughter is you know just so much stronger than any sort of force that's going to, you know, come in and interrupt that because I don't know, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of just like you're saying they're there. It's their mutual agreement that they're, you know, doing this, that they're living this way. And, uh, you know, that's, yeah, just, and the, just the fact that that overcomes, you know, definitely gives the, the sadness and kind of the doom laden feel that we, you know, we, we feel in these black and white scenes later, it really kind of, uh, hammers it home. Yeah, and I love when you cut to the black and white stuff, like, you know, 20, 30 minutes into the movie, you cut back to Gene Seberg in the present day, you know, on a date with one guy and just kind of dropping him mid-date to dance with another guy and then going back to him and and then just leaving them to fight and go to the bathroom, which feels like a, a Hollywoodized, like a very... Uh, you know, elevated version, uh, not elevated, but yeah, you know, heightened version of something that from like an Antonioni movie or something like that. Yeah. Uh, predating Antonioni's 60s movies, at least. But, you know, he was making 
uh, uh, Lizamishas at this point and uh, Il Grito. So there was, there's a possibility that Preminger saw some 50s Antonioni going into this. Uh, but regardless, I, I think that his approach to alienation visually is very different. Uh, Preminger here is all about the the scope framing and using it uh, to create alienation and intimacy. Uh, you know, one shot after the next almost, whether characters are grouped together or shot in singles with these huge wide spaces, dead spaces often on the left and right side of them, uh, often is, you know, based on the intention and the tone and the emotions of the scene. And I think Preminger is a key director of the classical Hollywood style with this being one of the best examples in that like, sure, there's beauty in the frame. The black and white stuff has a great contrast. The color stuff, you're at one of the most beautiful locations in the world. How does it not look great? But his formal tendencies have a sly thing where it's like, yeah, he's gonna he's gonna favor long takes, and if you're looking for the cut, you'll notice that he's a long take kind of guy. But he's a very subtle stylist, and I think that it's only when you're really paying attention and trying to you know do a mental shot list while you're watching one of his movies that you realize how unconventional his form is and the way that he stages and the way that he stages in order to shoot economically with a low amount of takes uh you know bringing him back to his theatrical roots i uh i really love that you bring up uh staging because there's one big moment uh that happens that i feel like is staged in a very unconventional way for something that is like doing like melodrama in a very traditional sense that i feel like plays with sort of the ennui and remove and alienation there is uh, there's this whole big convoluted plot that happens uh, where Seberg uh, and uh, the Elsie, oh yeah, Elsie, yeah. Elsie are going to do this like whole sort of like uh, they they do a big plot to get Niven back with Elsie and uh, to dump uh, Kerr, um, but the reveal of the information there that uh, Niven is back with Elsie, I feel like is extremely powerful to me because you just like. You see Seberg watching uh, Kerr, and you only you uh, we don't see any no. of Niven and Elsie. You just hear it, mm-hmm. and I feel like their absence in the frame is very much felt. And I feel like that's a if you're doing it like again, like not to say that like obviously Preminger master of like classical style but I feel like you think in your mind of like a Hollywood way to shoot this it's you're getting reactions like this is a big reveal moment and here it's played like very intimately with like observing a character observing another and it just like makes it feel like a little bit smaller but like more like intimately damning Yeah, I feel like the layers of voyeurism in that scene are so fascinating, you know, because uh, as you said, uh, Jean Seberg, she sets up this plot so that Deborah Kerr will walk in on David Niven hooking up with his young girl again after, you know, saying that he was going to marry her. Uh, And we get all these voyeuristic POV shots. uh, And then finally, the, the way it's shown, the actual thing, we just hear the the dirty talk as it were Mm -hmm. uh and we're doing like almost a shot reverse shot but each thing you're cutting between is just like 
Kerr and Seberg's reactions to what they're watching. And so it's, yeah, it's like you, it's like, uh, you have a B and C making a triangle and you take out B or something like that. It's a, it's a very unconventional way to stage this. And I think it's brilliant. That scene really drives home kind of like the great use of this, you know, vacation setting this, you know, very, this vast property that they're, uh, you know, vacationing on and kind of, you know, it's a very simple, but kind of uh, just classic concept of kind of like, you know, the, the overwhelming beauty of a location matched with like the vapidness and, you know, uh, of these characters. And then that, that scene where, you know, Niven has snuck off, you know, in the trees somewhere near the beach and he's talking, you know, dirty to, you know, his young mistress and, Kerr's listening and Seberg's listening and you really like I don't know like it it takes a beautiful piece of property and makes it kind of like this weird labyrinth where people are hiding off and doing bad things you know it kind of uh I don't know takes something beautiful and uh, reveals the ugliness of it absolutely and you know that leads to that revelation uh leads to the Deborah Kerr character and just driving off in a huff and then once again off screen she dies in a car wreck uh all we see is like smoke billowing up from off of a cliff and you know uh the the two main surviving characters approaching the damage and watching it uh watching the car get dredged up and it's shocking uh in the way that if you've seen Preminger's Angel Face, I believe, the the Robert Mitchum one, there's also a very shocking car wreck in that one that's shown on screen. Uh and I feel like that might be the difference, the the maturity difference, you know, whether he's in uh his more black and white, you know, uh punchy noir mode or if he's in more of his mature dramatic mode where he's making choices like this. And I, I love him in noir mode too. Angel face is one of my very favorite Preminger's, but it is like him trying to elevate a noir where this really feels like one of his dramatic productions. Yeah, no, I mean, I think across the board throughout his career, he's a spectacular filmmaker and I feel like deriving you of conventional images that you would see uh, in these types of scenes makes it really powerful. I mean, again, I'm blanking on what exactly Niven says to uh, his younger mistress, but it's like really fucking damn. Yeah, he cool. says, it's like he says like uh, he's like, oh, yeah, I said I, I'd marry her. That's what you got to say to girls like that. You know, you got to say you'll, I'll marry you, you know. I'll- and it's funny because he really does not change it all right after that. They agree to write her a letter uh, before they find out she dies in a car wreck. And he's like, so I'll say something along the lines of uh, you say silly things to a silly girl. Yeah. And it's like he just literally reversed it and was like, oh, I just had to say it to her to, you know, fuck her, I guess. It just really heightens like the casual cruelty of all that for me. Yeah. And it's just ugh, so miserable. Yeah, especially when they're writing that letter before the phone call comes in that alerts them there's been a fatal wreck uh, around the corner from their property. That feels like the most evil scene in the whole movie. Like, you know, especially how this being a rewatch for me, knowing that Anne just drove off a cliff uh, and they're just like very gleefully uh, joking around about how they're going to phrase the apology and how she'll easily come back into their life and everything like that is just oof pure evil uh and that's what this film's all about i think it's just like it's 
much edgier than what uh, I would compare it to in the European art house films of the 60s in terms of those ennui breeding, uh, you know, immorality type movies. Uh, this one has the punch of it and the the bombast and the bravura of a Hollywood movie. And that's why it's so great to me is that it rides the line between the European modernist uh, you know, thought-provoking films and the very thought-provoking Hollywood bombastic melodramas of the 50s. And yeah, so he finds a very sweet spot there. And I, I'm going four bullets on this one. Um, I think I'm, both times I've been teetering on bumping it up a little, but I, I'm going to stay strong with four bullets here. I think it's great. Not one of Preminger's like very like most complete great films, um, but I think that is part of you know talking about a assembly line auteur. Sometimes you know a guy like me who is very into uh, the generic films, the genre films of the 1940s and 50s is maybe going to gravitate more toward a Daisy Kenyon or a uh, angel face than this. Even if I can absolutely say that this is the more groundbreaking film in film history. Yeah. I'm going to go, uh, four bullets. Uh, for this one as well, it's a great film. I, uh, we got to bring the big boy back. I would love yeah. to talk about more Preminger, uh, especially because now I feel like this is maybe like tenth or so film of his that I've seen. I feel like at this point in like going through a director's filmography, like no matter how like quick or slow, I feel like you get like all the pieces coming together. Mm -hmm. And this uh, very much so uh, reminded me of. There's another later uh, Preminger. Um, that is a UK production that's a bunny lake is missing mm -hmm. that that also has a weird like psychoanalytic relationship uh that one's more of a brother sister thing um but yeah I don't know it's a uh, you can see you can see what Preminger's working with at, at now at this point and uh I don't know I think he's a spectacular filmmaker and it'll be a great service of us to I don't know be on that bandwagon for a little bit all right, Malcolm, what about you? A score and any final thoughts? Yeah, I'm going to give it four and a half bullets. Just kind of like what you were saying, Eddie, because it really does kind of feel like this perfect meld of like European art house tendencies to come, not even well establish it, but to, to come. And then kind of the Hollywood sensibilities that Preminger developed all, over these years. And. Yeah, it, I don't know. It, it feels like a, a remix of one of those, like, uh, uh, Romare vacation movies, you know what I mean? With a little bit of, uh, you know, Preminger uh, thrown into it. And, yeah, you know, that that is a good point, JT, about, you know, he's into the... the I can't remember in Bunny Lake if it goes full incest, but he's into, like, the quasi-incestual relationships. You know, Preminger's, like... It's, you know, it's good to hang out with your family, but don't be, don't be hanging out with them too much. You know what I mean? You don't need to tell them, <laughs> you don't need to be telling them everything. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, family's good. We all love our family. Maybe we don't, but you know, it's, maybe don't kiss your dad on the mouth. Don't kiss yeah. your dad. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, the, the, message. it's yeah. the rebel without a cause thing though. <laughs> like clearly he's, he's thinking about how it's weird that more conservative families the kids are still kissing their daddies on the mouth yeah. a little weird you know let's just say in that situation i'm i'm working out on the beach i'm all sweaty my daughter comes up to me dressed like that starts kissing me on the mouth 
let's just say she's living with her mom tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if a- my if my theory about where the mom is in this movie stands true, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> did, you, did you see a, a, a map uh, a map out for your life in this movie, Eddie? Is that is that what you're? No, us? I did not. <laughs> <laughs> We will be right back on Extended Clip. So here I am, surrounded by my wall of memory. I try to stop remembering, but I can't. And so often I wonder, when he's alone, is he remembering too? I hope not. My smile is void of laughter. My kiss has no caress. I'm faithful to my lover. My bitter sweet priestess. Oh, she'll stay. How can you be so sure? I know women. I know how to make them like it. Oh, you want her to stay? Yes. Yes, I want her to stay. It's an amazingly good figure. <laughs> yeah, you know, I know. you got to fix that, too. The only show that's coming back because of this is Real Time by Bill Maher. That's the only Look, show. Look, buddy, that's, that's, all, that's <laughs> all we need. <laughs> you know, it's funny. My parents, they like, like Real Time, you know what I mean? Which is, you know, it's normal. But I, I yeah, keep, of course. I keep, I keep telling them like, get into Club Random. Like you gotta. I'm like, real oh time, my god, real time sucks. Like you gotta. Yeah, watch real time Club. is the weak shit. You gotta. Yeah, you gotta <laughs> dive. If, are you a real Bill fan? And, like, and, check and, out. Have you have you gotten them to watch any Club Random episodes? I showed them a clip, and they're just they could they didn't like the vibe. You know, it, it's a it's a dingy, dirty. You, know, you gotta get kind you of vibe. pick it's, the what was the guest? You you gotta pick a like a fan. Uh, like what? Who's who's someone your family is gonna really love? I I definitely they, uh, was trying to scare him a little bit. I, I definitely showed him the Richard Dreyfus <laughs> one, and that one's that one's scary. That one's like literally like two corpses like rattling around like for for an hour. Like that one's a legit like kind of scary watch. Like the the lighting's like a little bit dark. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with that one. Then Richard Dreyfus. Speaking of incest, Richard Dreyfus. Said he wanted to fuck his sister, and he's like drunk as hell. It's like he said that on Club Random. He was like, I had fantasy, like I would masturbate to like my sister or something. Jesus I didn't, Christ! I didn't show them that part, of course. But like, yeah, yeah. No blinker. I'm good, thanks. <laughs> oh, okay. Malcolm calling me out for not hitting blinkers. No, blinkers are blinkers are tough. Blinkers are tough. We don't Malcolm, need to Come on, Malcolm. I'm not hitting blinkers on the pod. <laughs> We got a job to do here. It's, it's it's just like it's like internet encouraging. Like if I were watching a live stream and I saw someone hitting a pen, I like I would want to tell them like hit a blink. But this isn't even a this this is just a private live stream. Yeah, private. Yeah, guys exactly. <laughs> private cam show. <laughs> yeah, no, I love the weekly cam show we get from you. True. I'm on my bed too. It's yeah, essential. no, exactly. It, it you look again as you've said before. Looks like you're getting sucked <laughs> off. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's still the funniest thing in the world for me. Like someone being happy while they're getting it. Like that's that just makes me laugh every time. Being like, doing the doing oh, the Ferris yeah. Bueller pose. <laughs> I did. Uh, I was very tempted. You know, when I first met him to offer Whit Stillman a blinker off the Benjamin, but unfortunately, <laughs> you know, couldn't get there. Couldn't quite get there with him. If we, if we had like a, you know, like if we were like full fledged Howard Stern mode, like we had a full studio, it would have been oh, great yeah. to hit Stillman with some antics. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nothing, nothing harsh, you know, but just some very, very light, light ribbing. Light, yeah. yeah, yeah, light stuff. Like the way they have the Sibian, it would be funny if the extended <laughs> clip studio. You have to just like take a ridiculous bong rip, like just like <laughs> we're capping it with wax. We're fucking going off on you, and we're making fun of you if you can't clear that shit. Yeah, like, like it's a, a hot ones with bong. Yeah, rips. and like you have to clear it too. Like if you start having a coughing fit, and you're like, "All right, dude, I'm good." It's like, no, <laughs> yeah. we're we staring should... at you until you clear that shit. <laughs> We should make it like 2016 weed dispensary vibes. We just have a yes, an attractive lady with like a dab rig. <laughs> so yeah, people, doing the dominatrix dabber. Yeah, yeah pe- oh pe- my God, people yeah. feel like socially pressured to hit the dab yeah. rig, or else the lady would be like, the hot chick will be upset with you. Yeah, she'll be like, that's kind of uh, yeah. It's extended clip. It's Malcolm in the middle. Uh, Malcolm, you uh, you chief and bud. You rolling up. You hitting blinkers. Uh, I've been yeah. I've been I've been keeping keeping it clean. Keeping it uh, just pan usage lately. Uh, just trying to get you know no need for the the thrill the frills or anything like that. And I have to say my movie watching has probably hit besides what um, we're doing for the podcast has probably hit the gutter as. I've been I've been beckoned and called back to the multiplex. I can't I can't stop mm. going to this goddamn multiplex and buying twelve dollar matinee tickets. I can't stop doing it because oh, so you're not on the A list? No, no. Well, not the where I'm at right now. It's not a, a there's not really an AMC for like an hour. So yeah, no. Cinelux is the the domineering uh, theater chain around here. And I saw, I saw what might have been my worst, maybe the worst thing I've seen all year, and uh, um, you know, a movie that I should be reprimanded for even watching, The Nun Two. I went to go see The Nun, The Nun Two, which is hilarious because, um, I mean, it's just it's so fucking boring. It's just a fucking boring movie about um, some like Catholic. school like some nun boarding school scenario and it's the church is haunted basically and they got to exercise the demon and it seems like there's like a, like lore from like the nun one i think that's what they originally the, the jean colette sarah is that no i don't think or am i thinking of the orphan you're thinking of the orphan orphan two would have okay. been i think they did make an orphan too um i'll have to check that out i think it's called orphan first kill or something like that but yeah then orphans orphans that would have been that would have been sick but uh yeah that would have been good they gotta more movies gotta do that yeah honestly yeah the the plural uh title for a sequel that's actually that's pretty sick better much better i'm pro pluralization much better than the nun two which is like was the first one called the nun one (laughs) yeah i don't know why that 
The Nun One. So in The Nun One, I think there's a lot of shit that happens. It's just a fucking uh, very bad movie. I thought Blumhouse did it. Apparently, it was... Uh, yeah, I saw you tweet. <laughs> yeah, I saw Malcolm tweet post. at Jason Blum how much he hated this movie. It's like, I don't know if you made this movie or what, but The Nun 2 I did contact... I thought you should know. I yeah. did contact Jason Blum because he can't... First of all, he can't possibly know everything that's going on in his business. I know, you know, people like to claim they're on top of shit, but there's probably shit that seeps through the cracks. And, uh, I just contacted him. I didn't know if it was his movie or not <laughs> saying, um, none too was not quality. Don't know if it's your movie or not, but just thought you should know. And to be honest, if it's, uh, if it's not his movie, that should reach him with good news because he's like, okay, none too fucking sucked. Word on the street, none yeah. too was didn't get the job done. I could come in, swoop in with my movie. My movie is going to at least be better than that, and that's the bar that I have to clear. Well, also the real good news for him is I still got Malcolm. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah, true. You that's know, true. he's like, oh, I, I didn't make the nun too. I still got Malcolm <laughs> on my side. Yeah, no, I, I like Jason Blum. I like I, I um, yeah. Well, now that you know he didn't make none too, you guys are yeah, back like to being even more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, if a couple bad movies, he's he's on the shit list, and he probably, yeah. To be honest, he probably deserves to be there now. But uh, I don't know. I, he tweeted something like, "I got a positive feeling." I don't know. I want more movie studio producers to have a public face. I feel like they're all they're all <laughs> hiding nowadays due to labor reasons or whatever. Blum's out. Blum's yeah. out there being like, "I just took a run." You know what I mean? Here's here's a picture of my dog. You know what I mean? It's better than nothing. Yeah. We got to get... Uh, who, who's the lady that was running all the Disney productions? Uh, Catherine something? No oh, man. I don't Kathleen, know. Yeah, Kathleen... Kathleen Kennedy? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, we we got to get Kathleen Kennedy like... Uh, doing the the thing like posting a pic like dj Khaled, you know posting a picture of her on the phone where it's like just talk to the <laughs> just talk to amc <laughs> they're putting in the new servers uh we're all good to go for the release of the of you know marvel 27 and it could be real like that's the thing i don't know maybe yeah. it actually goes down like so yeah we want we want more posts we want more public posts I think that's what that's, everyone's clamoring for is for more directors to be online is that directors and producers should just like go online all the time and speak their feelings on stuff. I, I think that's what the the public wants. I want everyone to reveal themselves. You know, that's that's all that I ask. You know what I mean? I feel like people are hiding. Reveal yourself. That's all I'm asking. Unmask yourself. Take off the mask. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's 2023, guys. Take off the mask. <laughs> JT, you watch anything good this week? Kind of. I mean, one thing I'm saving for if we're if we're gonna do a Malcolm in the Middle, maybe later. I'll I'll talk about this one, but later we're doing it now. Uh, I have a little bit of a rant in me for something. Okay. It's not. It's for a movie. I also pretty much I generally liked. I wasn't really paying much attention attention to it, but like um, the I I watched uh, the Quick and the Dead. Mm-hmm. On some, uh, I don't know, not like it's like a Tubi freebie, some type of Fubu. Fubu. Yeah, I think it was. It was. Uh, <laughs> I think. I think it was Fubu. I believe it was Fubu. But on some uh, free TV, like cable ass bullshit, um, Nico threw on the Quick and the Dead, and I had missed like the first ten minutes. And I was like, you know what? I'll check it out. 
uh, Sharon Stone, a Western, Gene Hackman. These are all things that, like, uh, I don't know, I'm I'm excited about. Yeah. I really like to see. The building blocks are there. Um, but I don't know. I kind of have a bone to pick with Sam Raimi in okay. general. Because, oh, uh, I know why. Why? Because he voted for freaking Trump. No, no, that's 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 the one good thing he has going for him. That like we politics, we, we completely align. Like that's like leave that man alone. Um, but uh, fucking like when uh, the whatever bullshit Doctor Strange movie he did came out, there were like tons of people online coming out of the woodworks being like, "Well, no, wait, this might actually be a good movie. It's directed by Sam Raimi." And it's just like, what is like, there's a weird, I feel like niche of like people who mostly just watch like American movies, not even like all that old American movies that like think Sam Raimi is a relatively, I don't know, a decent enough director where that would mean anything. And I like, uh, the Evil Dead movies. I think the first one is the best because I don't... I, I don't know. I like the third a little bit more than the second in terms of, like, the goofy comedy stuff. But the first one is a really fun, like, creepy, intense genre film. And I don't know. My problem with Sam Raimi in general is he's all flash in the pan. He's an all-style kind of guy. Like, he's like... But then when you break down his fundamentals... Like where we what's what are you really playing with? Mm-hmm. It really disappoints me and just like an early hip hop style director, you might say. Exactly, exactly. I mean I haven't I and I don't think I ever will revisit uh the Spider Man movies. I liked them a lot as mm-hmm. a kid. Probably better than whatever uh contemporary Marvel slot. Yeah, of course. But it's just like I, and I mean I'm sure like the odds and ends, like whatever like studio fare he's done in like the nineties, but it's just like why like why would you care about this man at all like it's just like a i don't know middling director who has like a little bit of like cuz i watched um is a liam neeson like 30s superhero movie dark man mm-hmm. a while ago as well and that was like fine enough but it's just like i remember you were saying like it was Kind of the unfilled potential thing in that movie, right? Like it should have been better. Yeah, no, there's, and I feel, I feel that with like a lot of, I mean, the quick and the dead, which I was like kind of half in and out of like watching, but there were points where it was just like, especially in something like I'm going to be a little on edge watching a Western where it's just like, I, you got to know your history. You got to play it right. And there are just too many things that, I mean, I know there's like, obviously, uh, Western revisionism. There's a lot more style that gets introduced into the genre there. But I, I don't know. It's just Sam Raimi's hip hop style doesn't exactly work all that well. You don't like the thing that I've seen on Twitter from that movie during a a, a duel where the camera goes like a Dutch angle and like shoots like in the POV at the bullet really fast. That's the only thing I know about that movie is the one shot that's like that. There's another moment like that where there's a like Gene Hackman is the big bad outlaw who's like running the town and the town is just built off of just like a bunch of duels that happen and there's this like weird sort of sequence where the camera pans through uh sort of a bunch of characters with like just a black background and like things floating around and i feel like this is a thing i've seen in other raimi movies and it's just like what what is this nonsense like cut that shit out of here i don't really i don't want that in this like it was just annoying um a little a little pushback on the uh only Sam Raimi fans don't watch anything but American movies thing. 
I feel like I actually think he kind of has a big international feeling. Weird. Like, not feeling, because uh, he has a distinctively American feeling in his movies. Yeah. Um, his stuff actually, like, gets around, especially Evil Dead. I mean, like, yeah. he, that's like a international cult hit, you know. Um, but I, I, I just wanted to get that. I, I feel like there were definitely some some angry listeners there forming. I mean, it's, hey, man, I because I, I don't like some like slob like Sam Raimi and it's like I like his mood like I like that you're making me defend Sam Raimi when I am not necessarily a fan of him whatsoever it's just like I I even this is being said as a man who gave quick and the dead uh three and a half uh bullets like that's it's a fun it was I had a fun time positive rating but like uh, you got a bone to pick with the auteur just in general it's just like I don't understand what like because for me again evil dead series probably and even like fans of his i would wager would say that's probably the best thing he's done yeah. but you're peaking that early like with your first few movies like come on buddy like what uh, we got here yeah i think that his spider-man movies i'm not gonna you know take them seriously at this point at this current juncture uh and if it's kind of a reactionary thing to just be like i don't like superhero movies so i'm not gonna take his superhero movies seriously then i you know i'm i'm lenny riefenstahl uh (laughs) but and it's not even reactionary to say that if anything you're fighting the capitalist system of superhero filmmaking uh but i i do remember re-watching those like at least at a cinephilic age, like at like 19 or 20 or so, and thinking they were at least like substantially better than the contemporary Marvel shit. Yeah, no. In the, and that was like when the contemporary Marvel shit, people weren't even sick of it yet. That was like, you know, 2013, 2014, when I rewatched those Spider-Man movies and was like, you know what? These are, these are solid three bullet movies, but exactly. I don't have any inclination to go back and take them seriously right now. It's just like, I feel like at the end of the day, probably the ceiling I have for most of his stuff is that like, it's fun and fine enough, but yeah. I just have... To any any of the impressionable young minds that might be listening to this, if you're thinking like, oh, well, who's the next like weird little like because people like to go in the nooks and crannies. Mm-hmm. And I suppose like in a way, Raimi, he's he's in a nook somewhere. Yeah, he's in a cranny. But it's just like find something. There's there are much more interesting avenues to go yeah. down. The guy knows his way around a cranny. This, I mean, this is a real deal. Hot take. You know, if anyone's. Not, you know, everyone, anyone listening that's like a little bit mad, this is what a real hot take is. It's a little controversial. Now, with Raimi, I haven't seen a lot of his stuff. I feel like I saw the first Evil Dead, <clears throat> saw the Spider-Man movies as a kid, and then I think I rewatched the first one for like a class or something. Um, and I remember enjoying it. Um, but I, I definitely... Film schools love teaching superhero oh, movies. Oh, yeah. Especially, you know. So weird. It's, you know. It's dark stuff. It really is. But uh, my final yeah. class that I took in undergrad, I remember doing a uh, a plot like a beat by a beat sheet essentially for <laughs> Iron Man or not Iron Man. Sorry, uh, Ant Man. Oh, and I was like, man. at least they chose the one by Peyton, my buddy Peyton <laughs> Reed and uh, my buddy Paul Rudd. You know, we, yeah, no, we got Peyton our old Reed. buddies there. That's you know? an, if you're gonna go in weird like American nooks and crannies, go Peyton Reed instead. Well, We're his I flowers. would say that Peyton Reed is a very good filmmaker. I think that they get at because uh, the one thing I was going to say in defense of Raimi and Malcolm, I'm going to get right back to you. Sorry to cut okay, in here. Okay. Uh, is that like 
clearly he's like a guy who likes the three stooges as much as he likes gore and so i think that is really the one selling point is him as a like a guy who's making comedies disguised as horror movies yeah uh or as all genre movies essentially and it's basically a mileage may vary situation like first evil dead i think is actually very funny because of how raw it is second evil dead i don't find as funny because it's a little too clean cut for me and the the humor seems a lot more intentional. I love how raw the first Evil Dead is. The humor almost seems accidental, but clearly he's getting at some Three Stooges shit the whole time. Malcolm, what were you going to say about Raimi here? Keep it quick. I, you know, it, it does seem like, and I haven't seen the movies. I haven't put in the work, so I can't. You know, maybe maybe I'll come around. Maybe five years down the line, he'll be singing his praises. But at this point, it is. It seems like sometimes he'll get some. He'll get some juice from like the evil dead stuff and like people will talk about him in the same conversation as they'll talk about like John Carpenter. And obviously like we know, you know, they're, yeah. they're in separate leagues there. And to speak on like people being like, Oh, he's directing Ant-Man and uh, doctor or Dr. Strange five, you know what I mean? Maybe this will be a good movie. It's like, yeah, maybe if it was like 1997 when he was like a still yeah, active yeah, yeah. working director, but this this guy had not made a movie in like years, you know what I mean? And maybe it's because the industry, you know, wasn't um, you know too nice to him. Maybe that's the reason. But I don't know. It, in terms of uh, you know people going oddity hunting, which that's a new that's a new thing now. People going oddity hunting, looking for the the strange movies that are actually good. I don't know. It seems like that the the pe- people overhyped it. They bought way too much stock in it, and I just. I haven't seen it, but it didn't seem like anyone said it was a good movie. So that's that's the book on. You know, we used to we used to hunt for large game, and now we hunt for movies that didn't get very good reviews. What a shame! What a shame, Eddie. Um, I watched a few movies this week. Um, Malcolm, yes. Oh, I was just about to. I was oh, about, is that I was what you were going to ask me? Like, Did you see anything this week that you got you got some thoughts on? Uh yeah, you know, I did. I watched Ghost World uh two nights ago. This is one that this is like a classic I saw it too late movie. Uh something that I also feel about like Donnie Darko, but I think what distinguishes uh Ghost World from Donnie Darko, or I guess what distinguishes Donnie Darko from Ghost World is the uh essential feeling of time and place that comes with Donnie Darko. The like impeccable sense of American history and specificity in Donnie Darko versus the kind of mix between an any town suburb and very strictly Los Angeles that ghost world presents. And, uh, Ghost World is an interesting movie. It's a coming-of-age movie. It's a very edgy movie by our buddy Terry Zweigoff, who uh, directed Crumb. And you clearly see that it's like, oh, that's the guy who directed Crumb, which is a documentary, of course. But uh, you, you see some R. Crumb stuff in the movie visually. You, you hear some dialogue that's reminiscent of conversations about art. Zweigoff even says he uses a long take for documentary purposes rather than more of a, a showy long take purpose. Um, but frankly, I just don't really think this came together all that well for me. It's one that if I saw it when I was 15, it would have, you know, I would have had the biggest crush imaginable on both characters. And, you know, it would have been my favorite movie for like five weeks, sophomore year of high school. Uh, 
I said would have, no, Malcolm. Really we're we're doing <laughs> we're purely really don't don't make this weird. I didn't, okay? I, didn't, I didn't say anything. I didn't say a thing. Yeah. There was no audio of me showing any doubt, so I don't know what made you think that. Video <laughs> viewers will see. He's just talking about Steve Buscemi. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's funny. Steve Buscemi's <laughs> character at this, it's like, oh, now it's like, I guess I'm closer to him than uh, the, the two main girls. And uh, this movie feels pretty rough on a guy like that. Not Buscemi com- particularly, but uh, because obviously I, the character gets some redemption in this. And it's uh, it's more about the, the cynicism of the two girls at the core. Uh, but I I don't know. It's, it's a very... Um, I don't even want to say it's a full-fledged cynical movie, but it, it kind of gave me a feeling about the world that I don't love, uh, especially coming from the guy who did Crumb. It's so weird. It's like uh, he he almost is assuming that any guy who likes to collect art is like Crumb's brother who kept drawing smaller and smaller until he died or whatever. <laughs> I feel like, um, I don't know, are either of you like, Bad Santa heads. I like. Bad I want to see Bad Santa again. It only a only a ch- childhood memory. Of I that feel one. like that was something where I, when I saw it as a child, it like terrified me because of the cynicism cynicism of it. But like revisiting that like a few years ago, I feel like it addresses like I I feel like obviously there's an edge to it yeah. and like there's a lot of comedy. Uh, coming from uh, Billy Bob's character and the fat kid that he befriends, mm-hmm. but uh, there's there's much more heart there and like likeability, like not likeability, but like there's more of a redemption and like understanding of the characters that I feel like is really your main like main problem with it. There's like well, why would you have such a cynical perspective? Like if you feel this way, why would you have such a cynical perspective on that character? And I'm open to that too. I yeah. just like also wish it was more funny and dramatically compelling. Like it also just like lays flat for a lot of the runtime in my opinion. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of jokes that just don't really hit. Cause I did get a few laughs out of it. You know, I just, they were kind of few and far between yeah. and it is a comedy, a dark comedy, black comedy. Everybody loves black comedy, ghost world and big mama's house. <laughs> you know where that was going yeah, right away. Juice yeah. world. Juice world. <laughs> R.I.P. Juice All right, We're done on extended clip. We're done. This episode is done. Goodbye. We'll see you on the Patreon next time to talk about The Fly by David Cronenberg to start the month of horror. All right. See you.